Welcome to All Things Cardio-Oncology. This is the podcast of the International Cardio-Oncology Society. My name is Steve Caselli. I'm the Executive Director of ICOS. And I want to welcome my uh, co-host today, Dr. Uh, Daniel Lenahan, who is in the St. Louis area, and Dr. Arjun Ghosh in the UK. So Arjun, welcome. Uh, thanks so much, Steve. Uh, really happy to be here for this uh, episode, which is promising to be excellent. And welcome, Dan. Thanks again, Steve. And as always, these podcasts are quite interesting to me and uh, learning about what people are doing around the world to, to improve heart health in patients who either have cancer or have previously been treated is uh, easily my favorite topic. Great. We are so glad to have you. And I'm personally really excited about this episode today as well, because one of my first exposures to cardio-oncology was through a family friend of ours who at the age of 30 had to have a heart transplant. And I didn't realize it at the time, but he was actually a childhood cancer survivor. And it was his cancer therapy as a child that actually led to his heart failure. So my personal early exposure to cardio-oncology was through pediatric cardio-oncology. And today we have the privilege of hearing from two of our key leaders in our uh, pediatric cardio-oncology working group. Veronica Santos is in Brazil and she's the chair of that working group. And Neha Banzel is the co-chair of this group. And so I wanna welcome both of you to our show today. Veronica, uh, please say hello and introduce yourself a little bit. Hi, hi Steve, Dr. Lenihan, Arjun, Neha. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Congratulations for ICOS providing this podcast that uh, allows so many people around the world understand and recognize the importance of cardio-oncology. I'm very thankful for this opportunity and to be part of the pediatric cardio-oncology team. Thank you so much. I'm a pediatric cardiologist in Sao Paulo, an echocardiographer with a special interest interest in survivorship programs, but also looking for children before and during their treatment. So thank you so much. Great. Thanks for being with us. And Neha, tell us a little bit about you and your work. Hi, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really honored to be here. My name is Neha Bansal. I'm a pediatric heart failure transplant cardiologist at Montefiore Hospital in New York City. Uh, I have a special interest in survivorship as well, like Veronica, and I also uh, run the cardio-oncology program here at Children's Hospital at Montefiore. So really excited to be here. Thank you. Great. So good to have you. I'm going to turn it over to uh, Arjun and Dan, who have some further questions for you. Great. Thanks uh, so much, Steve. Uh, so I'm going to be asking uh, a question. Maybe I'll put this to you first, uh, Veronica, and then maybe Neha, if we could get your take. Our listenership is a mix of uh, adult cardio-oncologists and pediatric cardio-oncologists, but uh, maybe some of the adult cardio-oncologists have not that much exposure to the pediatric cardio-oncology domain. So if you could just tell us a little bit more about you know, pediatric cardio-oncology, what it involves, and how it's different from adult cardio-oncology. Uh, Veronica, please. Oh yeah, thanks. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say that childhood cancers represents around one to 4% of all cancers. When we add pediatric and adult cancers, 
we are very small number of uh, of population, but we are very they are very important, of course. Uh, the childhood cancers have been diagnosed earlier around the world, providing much more chances of cure and increasing of in survival rates from around 60% in the mid 70s. And nowadays more than 80% of chances of cure and survive, good survival. Talk about pediatric cancer has lost the taboo and pediatricians and parents they are able to approach the subject more easily, allowing early diagnosis, which promotes and provides a proper and efficient treatment. However, some treatments can cause multi-organ toxicities, as we are here about to talk about, including the heart. And especially children, they have a very a high vulnerability, vulnerability to develop cardiovascular complications. That's what we call cardiotoxicity in so many different ways. And it's important to say that we do need to consider that young population has a long life expectancy along the years. And just cure cancer without a heart uh, program is not very, very fair. So cure cancer with a good quality of life is our main goal. That's why we are here. Thank you. Neha, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think Veronica touched on uh, the most important part about pediatric cardio-oncology is the fact that uh, we have excellent survivorship rates um, in the current era. Uh, like she said, 80% of our um, uh, patients with cancer survive long-term and which has increased leaps and bounds from the you know, 50s and 60s. Um, and so are, we are seeing patients who are surviving long-term. So at this point in time, um, if we look at statistics on these survivors, um, cardiovascular complications are actually the number one non-oncologic non cause of morbidity and mortality in these patients. Um, and it's actually interesting that when you compare these patients, cardiac cancer survivors, um, sorry, cancer survivors to the to their siblings or age match controls, um, the, the rates of cardiac deaths are eight to 10 times higher in these patients. Um, and that has to do with the fact that these patients live longer and are, we just know them for a longer period of time. So I think it's very, very important um, to recognize um, uh, these um, more long-term uh, side effects of car uh, like cardiotoxicity in these patients. Um, so I think that is a big difference from the adult um, uh, adult cancer survivors that they live a lot longer. And I think one of the biggest challenges in the field that we face as pediatricians is that as kids grow up, they move. And yeah. a lot of the times, unfortunately, they move across state borders, they move away, sometimes they move countries, and it's hard to keep track of them and follow them long term, um, which has been sort of the biggest challenge for us, um, as we sometimes have in our all our pediat all the pediatric cardiologists on the who are listening to this will recognize that one patient that just shows up in their ER, that probably has this remote history of cancer and then just presents in florid heart failure, just not having had seen a cardiologist in decades. Um, and so I think that is the biggest um, um, biggest issue in pediatric cardio-oncology because we see them for so, these patients survive for so long. So we, sure. we see side effects for a long period of time. 
Sure, sure. And we, we kind of have a good understanding, I guess, for adult cardio-oncology about the cancer types and the treatments and the cardiotoxicities. But if you could, uh, maybe if I could start with you, Neha, I mean, what are the main cancers that you do see in children and the cardiotoxicities that you have to deal with? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, um, we generally, uh, the, the referrals that come to me as a cardiologist, not all cancers come to me. So I think the biggest ones that I see, uh, we de definitely see all the, all the leukemia. So ALL, AML, um, we do see um, solid organ, um, uh, so, solid tumor sarcomas, um, predominantly any um, cancers that require anthracyclines, which I think are the mainstay of a lot of chemotherapy um, in pediatrics. Uh, um, a lot of pediatric chemotherapies, anthracycline heavy, uh, which is the number one cardiotoxic agent that we follow patients for. And then we often also see patients with Hodgkin's lymphoma uh, or non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, the ones that get uh, some mediastinal radiation, um, you know, so, so some side effects of radiation therapy um, we see there. So I think those are some of the very common um, uh, cancers that we see. And then when it comes to chemotherapeutic agents, like I said, anthracyclines are our number one um, chemotherapeutic agents to which we see long-term cardiotoxicity, which is where a lot of the research in pediatric cardio-oncology has been. Sure, sure. And Veronica, from, from your side, is it is it very similar? And in terms of the treatment that you offer the, the children, is it similar to, to adults in terms of ACE inhibitors, beta blockers? I mean, what are your feelings on that? Oh, yes. Some, some things are quite similar. And it, it's very important, first of all, to consider that children usually start begins the, the treatment with no comorbidities as adults usually have. And so we sometimes uh, can admit that the complication, the cardiotoxicity is really unique and due to the cancer treatment because the children usually comes with uh, some, uh, with a health system completely without no comorbidities and no past of pathologies that can uh, provide a cardiovascular complication during the treatment. It's very important to understand it. The management is quite similar. And as Niha uh, said, anthracyclines works in the, most, the, the majority of protocols in cancer, in childhood cancers. And of course, we all also use uh, tyrosinokinase inhibitors and other chemotherapy, you know, better chemotherapeutic agents and radiotherapy, but some of them, the complications are seen in the mid to the long-term, in a long-term follow-up. During the acute cardiotoxicity usually is due to anthracyclines. And we are very aware to the subclinical diagnosis, especially with the use of biomarkers and a good imaging system, especially strain imaging during, during the echocardiography. And also another important subject is the arrhythmias. We can see arrhythmias during treatment with these children, and bradycardias and tachycardias, and we are very aware about the KTC interval that is, can be enlarged uh, due to other drugs and not only for the chemotherapy, 
but we are all also making sure that everything is running all right. And another important issue is that uh, children usually have uh, infections and it's very severe when we add infections and other complications with a cardiovascular complication hidden. So that's the very important to the cardio-oncology, pediatric cardio-oncology be close to hematology and the intensive care unit to be uh, just in the right place in the right time to save this life. So that's what we usually work daily in our daily practice. Fantastic. Well, uh, again, this is Dan Linehan, and uh, just uh, one of the biggest strengths about pediatric cardio-oncology is, is the extensive work, research that has been done about late effects. And honestly, if you, if you look at the backbone of adult cardio-oncology, we really learned most of our important lessons from pediatric cancer survivors. So, this is, uh, this is absolutely a, a cornerstone of our, our general understanding. So what can we as adult cardio-oncology people learn from the pediatric late effects survivorship programs that, that are now being developed? Uh, so Niha, I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, <clears throat> I think um, the biggest challenge uh, in pediatric cardio-oncology or pediatric oncology is numbers. Um, we have such small numbers compared to adult oncology. So all our clinical trials or all our studies require extensive collaboration. Actually, any study in pediatrics does, even pediatric cardiology. So I think one of the biggest trends of all these different um, research studies, especially the, all the studies that came out of the late effects, you know, from the Dana-Farber, um, you know, a lot of them required a lot of collaboration with different institutions and, um, you know, funding and trying to really um, follow the protocols and all the clinical oncology group, um, the children's oncology group. It's a true testament to collaboration. So I think collaboration and working together, um, forming protocols, standardizing care. I think those are certain things that definitely the pediatricians have learned over the years, um, which has which has come out of the need for numbers, um, because all our all our studies, all every single center sees such small number of patients. So collaboration is key, um, and so I think that that is um, a huge thing. Which I know adult cardio oncology programs that are being set up are now working towards that. They're working towards um, standardizing care and working together and. Um, finding out ways to collaborate. Yeah, that's a super important point. Wow, I think I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think if we can first learn our lesson from the pediatric cancer survivors about you know how we how we monitor people over time. You know that 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 these major institutions really sort of led the way in doing that. But just like you said, the the idea of collaboration where it really has to be meaningful collaboration. It can't just be, you know, you, you talk to your friend periodically, you know, it can't be that way. It has to be uh, really integrated. That is a lesson that adult cardio-oncology needs to learn, that's for sure. 
So Veronica, what, what is your experience in Brazil? Is that uh, different or the same or what do you think? No, it's, it's uh, growing and it's quite the same. And we can uh, understand that there is a need for a bridge between pediatrics and adult cardiologists in a time, in a time of, the, of the life of this patient, mm -hmm. of his survivors. And so we work together. So there is a time that uh, they need us to understand what's happening and how to deal with, with the, the complication in a late time. And we need them to understand and follow the patient with adult issues. We know that these survivors, they develop early signs of atherosclerosis, valvular diseases, and they are much more suitable for comorbidities in a young adult age. So it's very important, this breed and this collaboration. We are having a very special attention nowadays for women who want to be pregnant. They, were, they are survivors from cancer, childhood cancer. So we are very uh, aware about the need of a close follow-up during the obstetrician uh, follow-up, the prenatal tests. And so we are close to them. And so in fact, here in South America, uh, women do want to be pregnant very young and they still have this culture. And so we are in the counseling system, it's very important to be, to be, be close to them. So it's part of our, our work here. So- sure. Well, and I also think that considerations about certain medications in a childbearing female is going to be, uh, you know, significantly different than, you know, your average adult. So, so I think that these are very important topics. Um, and it's, especially in your view, Veronica, what are the other, uh, you know, important topical research areas in pediatric cardio-oncology? Uh, now the I think we are as I said uh, these survivors have been att paying attention here in Brazil. Uh, we are trying to spread this importance here in South America to look for for them. But we do need a good registry. We do need to understand what are the late effects in the people who were treated during uh, childhood here in this part of the world. So based on this, we are want, want to recognize and plan the needs of each, each institution and in edu educational needs. So we are in a very basic um, phase of the pediatric cardio-oncology educational program, uh, differently from the adults who the translational science and everything is growing faster so pediatrics is growing a little bit slow, and we always take an example, the adult experience, to understand what's happening here with the pediatric ones. Fantastic. And Mia, what, what would you say is, you know, sort of your important topics that, that you either think uh, your field would want to pursue or you personally uh, have identified? Yeah, I think what Veronica touched upon, like um, the fact that pediatric cardio oncology, we're still working on recognizing um, 
the best way for cardiovascular optimization in our survivors, or even like risk stratification for our survivors. I think um, the Children's Oncology Group has a great, um, you know, they have some guidelines available, but there's still guidelines. There's no, um, uh, there's no evidence-based guidelines yet for us um, uh, per se to follow these survivors long-term, which is probably the biggest challenge um, worldwide, I would say, um, even for adult cardiologists, like how to follow these survivors long-term, um, all the guidelines, there's lots of guidelines out there, but just to find harmonization between those guidelines and, um, maybe have back it up with some evidence would be fantastic. So I think that would be the key for risk stratification. And then recently, I think there's been a lot of, um, interest, um, in, um, genetic predisposition, for these long-term cardiotoxicities, which I think has been a very exciting field. Can we tailor um, chemotherapy for some of our patients, um, you know, based on their genetic predisposition? That would be like something long-term. If we could do, that would be very exciting. I think those are, um, those are some of the key things that I think would change the future of pediatric cardio-oncology. Okay, sure. there's another, another, if you permit, uh, another issue that has, uh, paying attention is the, the long-term effects of cardioprotection. Uh, we all know that some primary cardioprotectant agents such as dexadoxan is most more in the, most, in the majority of times they are using children. And so with good results, we know as Dana Farber studies and so other ones, Dr. Lipschus is one of the, the biggest uh, persons who studied dexhazoxan and the late, the late uh, effects of this cardioprotection in a long-term uh, issue that we really want to understand. And at the same time, carvedilol is very, very used here and around the world. And so we do need to understand and recognize if it's really protecting in a long-term these patients. So it's, it's part of the interest in, in research in our area too. So, so that's really great to hear, Veronica and Neha, that there's lots and lots of different, you know, and quite varied research topics that are quite, uh, you know, active and lots of uh, evidence that we need to find out and grow the, uh, grow the field really. And one of the aims of, of our podcast is really to attract trainees in the field to the area of, uh, you know, pediatric cardio-oncology and the other uh, topics that we talk about. So uh, as a pediatric trainee, how can they train in pediatric uh, cardio-oncology? What's the best pathway? And uh, Veronica, maybe if I could start with you. Oh, yes. Uh, first of all, uh, usually the uh, people who is a trainee in pediatrics who has interest in the oncology and cardiology issues, they is spend some time with the, the teams, with, this, with specialist team. But uh, to be a proper cardio-oncology, I think that cardio, pediatric, cardio, pediatric cardiology is the most important area to be uh, advanced in the third, in the fourth year of training. Of course, imaging is a, an important subject that needs to be close to the clinician here. And because we don't have uh, the possibility to really 
understand and really make a real diagnosis without an image, a good imaging in our hands. So it's very interesting. But so answering your question, pediatric cardiology, it's the main uh, train that be, must be developed. And we are expecting to uh, develop and attract much more cardiologists to this area. Great. Uh, Neha, what was your experience in training in pediatric cardio-oncology and you know, how widespread are the opportunities in the US? That's a great question. So unfortunately, there's no set path to cardio-oncology fellowship um, in pediatrics like it is there in the adults. Um, the way I got exposed to, to cardio-oncology was because Dr. Steve Lipschultz was the chair of pediatrics where I was. Um, and so it was very interesting how I got exposed to cardio-oncology because of his experience. Um, however, um, there's lots of people across the country who have a lot of interest. Now, like Veronica said, there's some imagers who are interested in cardio-oncology and then uh, a large uh, portion of pediatric cardiologists who are heart failure or transplant cardiologists like me are also interested in cardio-oncology. So I think it emanates from a place of interest. Um, there is unfortunately no set um, training program that is out there. Um, and I think a lot of people um, are learning this kind of on the job a little bit and how they work with different people and partnering with their oncology team. Um, and I think those are key ways to collaborate with different subs, uh, with different specialties within either cardiology and oncology and build a program together. That's how a lot of cardio-oncology services across the U.S., to my understanding, are building. Okay, so that really very nicely leads on to my next question. Um, if your, you know, your area doesn't have a cardio-oncology service, you know, how, how is the, you know, what is the best way to try and develop a pediatric uh, cardio-oncology service? And maybe if you could just tell us about, you know, what your day-to-day -day job uh, entails. Right. So um, when I joined at Montefiore, we did not have a car pediatric cardio-oncology service per se. We, um, so I worked very closely with our oncology uh, colleagues and there is a REACT, um, um, REACT clinic, which stands for Reassessment and Evaluation After Cancer Treatment, which is short for um, survivorship clinic. And so I worked with the oncologist who runs the survivorship clinic in the oncology division. And there is definitely a need. Every oncologist welcomed the idea of having a cardiology partner on their team. Um, and so we formed um, a clinic, cardio-oncology clinic, which, we, which worked in collaboration with the REACT clinic. So all the survivors who were coming to the REACT clinic who needed to see a cardiologist, I would kind of see them the same day. Um, so it would run once a month. That's how we worked our outpatient clinics. For inpatients, um, I sort of would do consults on any newly diagnosed um, pediatric cancers who we know would receive either radiation therapy or high dose chemotherapy. So a high risk patient for long-term cardiotoxicity effects. And I would go and talk to the families go and explain them what kind of chemotherapy they're going to get and uh, with the oncologist, obviously, and then would talk to them about the long-term effects of that chemotherapy. So that's how our inpatient consult sort of teams uh, worked. However, it requires a lot of collaboration, as you can imagine, with your oncology colleagues, um, because 
you you would get consults only if they like you would have to work with them and they would sure, call sure. on you and um, I think that our oncology colleagues are very excited to have someone interested and work with them. So I feel like if you just reached out, if you wanted to grow a program and develop a program, if you just reached out to your oncology colleagues that you have an interest and you would want to work with them, I'm sure that you can form a program together. Great. And Veronica, is that your experience also in how to get a program, you know, off the ground and, you know, what what is your day-to-day job like? Yes, yes. The, the beginning was very hard. Nowadays, things are getting easier because we are always trying to make um, understandable and try to translate uh, the cardiology for hematologists and oncologists and make them understand there needs to be a team. So nowadays, uh, especially young doctors in hematologists and oncologists, they are much more close to us. And nowadays we have uh, an interesting uh, into hospital and outpatients uh, clinic. And so we have the, the evaluation, the cardiology evaluation before each treatment. We understand and we discuss the design of the protocol and create the follow-up during this treatment of each patient. There is an important issue here that we need to, to say. It's very important to work together with the multidisciplinary team. So when we, we are talking about a good protocol, a good program, we need a good nurse close to us, a good manager of this protocol. And the yeah. nurses are wonderful for this. So the uh, other uh, persons from the multidisciplinary team, of course, nutrition, psychologists, physiotherapy, but nursing is the clue. So we know that they are very important for the, the success of, of this program. And as Niha said, uh, they are very excited and being uh, very interested to create protocols. And here in Brazil and South America, we are trying to uh, make them much more excited every time that we talk in meetings and every meeting, it's very important. Oncology meetings, cardiology meetings, pediatric meetings, they need to understand and know that we are here and that pediatric cardiology really exists. It's not a dream, it's a real life. So we are working hard for it, but nowadays things are getting much more easier than in the past. Uh, I wonder what you think is, you know, what, what is the best way that we can continue to grow pediatric cardio-oncology. And I think by the fact that you guys are doing this podcast, I think that's a big step, but you know, there probably are other strategies. What do you think we should be doing there? Uh, so Niha, I don't know if you want to take that one first. Um, sure. Thank you so much. So um, I think that, um, like I alluded before, collaboration is key. Our numbers are very small at every single institution. So I think working together with um, with different institutions and even countries, which is where IPOS probably comes into play. I think that collaborating across the countries, trying to find the numbers to work together for finding the best way to risk stratify these survivors and then 
to work on maybe clinical trials. I mean, it's a dream to do pediatric clinical trials um, um, and, you know, uh, find best way to optimize their cardiovascular health long-term. Funding has always been an issue for pediatric trials. Unfortunately, given the low numbers, um, uh, successful trials are always hard to come by in pediatrics, given the low numbers, smaller sample size. Uh, We often get marred by negative trials because of very low death rate in pediatrics. So at any outcome measures are very, um, the the rates are very low. So um, our trials often turn out to be negative. But I think if we can find novel biomarkers, which is uh, where a lot of the research is going into finding ways to optimize um, the long-term heart health of these survivors, I think that is the way to, to grow forward. So I think working together, finding ways to stratify and then um, treat these survivors um, together. I think so collaboration, collaboration and collaboration is the key to move the field forward. Super, I guess that's like, you know, basic advice when you're looking to buy or sell a house, you know, you say location, location, location. So, so I guess we'll just have to say that from now on on our podcast, you know, collaboration, collaboration, collaboration. So, Sounds perfect. Yeah. So Veronica, what do you think uh, in Brazil or beyond? What what can we do to to grow this field? Yes, yes, thanks, Dr. Linhan. Uh, as Niha said, uh, collaboration and you uh, is the, the 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 magic word word. And now our pediatric working group is working in a, with a survey that's being sent to a lot of colleagues. And perhaps here we can give them the, a link to be part of the survey. So our intention is to recognize where they are, who they are, what their needs in pediatric cardiology around the world, around the countries that uh, collaborate with ICOs, especially. And the other magic word is educational, education, educational programs and always uh, remembering during meetings and during in and talk to the 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 to people make uh, ordinary people understand and perhaps remember their doctors that the heart is there and the heart can be damaged during the treatment and so it's a hard work to be close to everyone but i think there are so many different ways to get close and improve and grow the field and multicentric uh, trials, of course, uh, it will be the, the dream come true to establish really the, the, the reality of pediatric world in this kind of uh, issue. Thank you yes. so much. Yeah, fantastic. And uh, Niha, part of what you mentioned before about the, that there wasn't a, you know, an established guideline, at least for a pediatric cardio-oncology or, you know, aspects of it. And, and that, that is true, but I will, I will have to give a little bit of plug to our colleagues at the European Society of Cardiology who are developing a, a guideline document for cardio-oncology in general. And of course, they're focused on adults, but they actually have at least one whole section on cancer survivorship. And, uh, it is, I've seen it, you know, I've seen the drafts of it and it's, it's, I think it's going to be really good. And it, 
uh, it will at least uh, push push the field forward some. Obviously, I think having more uh, international input into how we do our studies better or how we treat these patients better, uh, that's always needed. So I think uh, it is exciting that these, these guidelines should come out in the August, September timeframe this year. And uh, I would encourage you, you guys to take a careful look at the survivorship piece of, of those. Absolutely. That's fantastic to hear. Um, I think the children's oncology group definitely puts out some guidelines. Um, and I think the, 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 what I was alluding to is the fact that these guidelines are mostly expert consensus, not so much evidence-based, which is where I think, which is what is needed to, I think, move the field really, really forward if we could get them with the help of, uh, you know, registries and clinical trials. So, uh, yeah, really I mean, it's, a, it's, it's, it's always much better if we have, if we have actual data to, to go through and find the strengths and weaknesses. And, and partially to that end, uh, Veronica and Niha both have mentioned, you know, about desertoxane. And uh, as a cardioprotectant, uh, it's, it's really the only truly effective primary prevention of cardiotoxicity. And the place and where it is really, you know, found a benefit is in kids. But in the adult world, it, it kind of got thrown by the wayside and we keep trying to pull it back onto the road here. But, but I do think that we can learn a lot from the pediatric cardio-oncology services about using desertoxane in high-risk patients in particular. And, and so, so I think we have learned a lot in the past from our pediatric colleagues, and I think we need to continue to do that. And uh, the, the whole survivorship piece really is, you know, all of our basic information came from there. And then, as, as I just mentioned about the desertoxane story, I think that is a drug that uh, thankfully has not gone away, but it sure has been hidden for a long time. So hopefully we can pull it back out again. But uh, I would really want to thank both of you for joining in. This has been fantastic. And as, as I thought before we started that I would learn a lot today. So I can say that I did. So Arjun, I don't know if you have some final thoughts too. Yeah, I mean, I have to say that I've really enjoyed this and uh, exactly like you, Dan, I really have learned a lot and I'm sure that this was a very useful uh, podcast for our listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today. If you would like more information about ICOS, go to ic-os.org where you can learn more about all our activities, including our weekly webinars, our board certification exam, and our Centers of Excellence certification. Thanks again for joining us where we are taking survival to heart.